Well, good morning. My name is Elliot, and I am the middle school pastor here at Waterstone. Uh, actually, this morning, we've got some of our middle school students with us. You guys can give us a little shout out real quick. All right, all right. We're still waking up, okay? We had sleepovers last night, and I see some parents waving to their kids, so that's great. So I, uh, I, I uh, work with middle school students here. It's a joy, though, to be downstairs with you all and my middle school students. It'll be nice not to have people raising their hands in the middle of my message to see if they can go to the bathroom. So that will be an added plus, I'm sure. We are in a series, as many of you guys know, on the seven deadly sins and looking at um, each one of them one a week. Uh, We've been trying to look at sin in its eyes and recognize it's worse than we oftentimes acknowledge. And at the same time, look at Christ and see that he is far greater than we often even imagine. So today we're looking at gluttony. Before I get going, I have to confess two things. One, there is an irony to me preaching on gluttony. Now, I know a lot of people have said that when they got up here. Paul last week said, you know, anger is kind of my cardinal sin. For me, gluttony is actually, and you might not think so because I have the metabolism of an 11-year-old girl in the body of a 26-year-old man, um, but it hides it well. So first, just know that, that uh, there is that, that part of me coming to the table. But second off, I actually kind of struggle to see gluttony as one of the seven deadly sins. I mean, it seems like it got just kind of wedged itself in there when maybe like anger was having this just blowout and and fit, gluttony kind of creeped into the list of seven deadly sins. In fact, gluttony seems to have, in many ways, the most comedic value of all the seven deadly sins. Uh, There is literally a guy named Jim Gaffigan. Raise your hand if you know Jim Gaffigan. Okay, his entire livelihood is based around gluttony jokes. Seriously, the guy has made millions off of Hot Pockets, right? Seriously. But then there are fictional characters who make us laugh, like the Austin Powers character, played by Mike Myers. Some of you guys might know him. He's got his initials right there. Or if you're a Star Wars geek, maybe you know this guy, Jabba the Hutt. And then there even are lovable gluttons. Oh, our favorite glutton of, glutton of all, Winnie the Pooh. I know, I got an awe. I didn't get an awe any other service, so that's a good one. But the truth is that we think of gluttony oftentimes as something that, yeah, thanks to our Sunday school teacher, we know a lot about, but we have little to do with. In fact, even the word gluttony itself seems to have these medieval connotations. This idea that, oh, gluttony is something that we don't talk about much in our culture. And so because of that, what I want to do today is break gluttony out of those possibly medieval connotations and put it into a definition that resonates with a 21st century audience like you and I. And so we'll define gluttony like this. Gluttony is the pursuit and overindulgence of the body's appetites. Now, I want to transition and begin to look at appetites, because I think as soon as we get rid of thinking of gluttony as primarily or even solely food and drink, we see that all of a sudden the pursuit of the bodies and overindulgence of the body's appetites begins to hit home a little bit more. So begin to ask yourself and think as I continue what appetites you might have. What appetites might be in your life? 
Um, one of the ones that my generation has seemed to um, just victor is the binge watching, like Danielle said earlier. If you're not familiar with binge watching, it's essentially sitting down and watching all of the, uh, all the seasons of your favorite show in like 36 hours, blinking four times and getting up for the bathroom once, right? If that's Seinfeld, it's like 134 seasons or something, right? Here's a video, kind of gives you a little better idea of what exactly binge-watching is. But more than binge-watching, right, which by the way, I think there are about three categories, if we're being honest with ourselves, that, that really we binge-watch. In my opinion, this is me, okay? One is The Bachelorette. Now, here's the thing. You might think, well, that's a single guy criticizing The Bachelorette. No, 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 no. I love The Bachelorette. When Rachel chose Brian, I was so angry. Anyone else know what I'm talking about here? All right, it's church, but we don't have to be closet bachelorette fans, you little liars, okay? That's fine. I just said I like it. The preacher said he likes bachelorette. All of you guys are like, uh, my mom's in the same row as me. All right, so uh, the bachelorette. Then there are sports, which I have nothing to do with. In my opinion, nuggets are something I eat at Chick-fil-A, not a basketball team. And then there is Sports for Nerds, also known as News, all right? So you probably fall on one of those three categories. I would put myself in News and Bachelorette. There are many things that we can entertain ourselves with, but outside of just watching, there are many appetites that we have. There are appetites for success, for recognition, for sex, for recreation, for notoriety or fame, for security. And as I go through, I hope you're hearing these are not bad things to have appetites for. In fact, all of us in our room, in this room, likely have appetites for all of the things that I just noted. But borrowing the language used by a well-known pastor, Andy Stanley, what you and I need to know about appetites is that you will either rule your appetites or they will rule you. And you can just pause for a moment and think about how that has played out in your life. You can think, some of you, about your parents or your kids, coworkers or family, friends. And the places they are in life is largely to do with how they handled their appetites, whether or not they ruled their appetites or their appetites ruled them. The passage that we had read at the beginning of service today was from Ecclesiastes, and Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon. Now, King Solomon was one of the kings of Israel. His father was King David. Many of us have heard of him because of Bathsheba and um, uh, David and Goliath. Well, his son was Solomon, and when we think of Solomon, oftentimes we think of two primary scenes early on in his life. The first is a dream that Solomon has. God comes to Solomon while he's asleep in the form of a dream, and he says, Solomon, ask what you want, and I will give it to you. And Solomon says, I want wisdom to rule your people. And God is so pleased with Solomon's decision that he actually says, I will not only give you wisdom, but I will give you wealth and life as well. And then the second scene we have of Solomon is when he's on the throne and two women rush in and there's a baby they're disputing. One of the two women had their own child but lost it early on in its infancy. 
and now has stolen the other woman's baby. The problem is, both women say the one fault is the other. So King Solomon sits, and he deliberates, he ponders, and uses the wisdom God gave him, and he says, let's cut the baby in half and give one half to either woman. And as he expects, the mother who truly knows it is her child who the king has just said to be cut in half shrieks with horror. And Solomon identifies her as the true mother and hands her the child. And so those are the two stories, the wisdom account and the dream and the babies that we really are introduced with Solomon. So he starts at the beginning of his story on this high place. But what we'll see as we look at his life today is that Solomon's life was defined by his appetites. And more specifically, Solomon was ruled by his appetites. The first point we'll look at today is that Solomon believed a lie. He believed that there was someone or enough of something in his life that could finally and fully satisfy him. Again, he believed that there's someone or enough of something that could finally and fully satisfy him. Now, we see this playing out in his life in a couple ways. The first one is that Solomon had great plans for building and construction. Oh, he wanted you and I to remember him while he was alive and not be able to forget him when he was gone. The problem is, if you read Scripture carefully and you read between the lines, these people who recorded his story are making statements in the way that they record it for you and I to pick up on and for God to teach us something. And so what they write in 1 Kings 9, after he's built all of this and amassed all these constructions and buildings, is this. King Solomon gave 20 towns in Galilee to Hiram, king of Tyre, because Hiram had supplied him with all the cedar and juniper and gold he wanted. In other words, King Solomon, in order to feed his appetite, in order to feed his cravings, actually was in so much debt, he had to give part of his kingdom, 20 towns, to another kingdom just to pay back what it cost him to feed his own appetites. But then later we see in his story that he actually enslaves his own people, the Israelites. Now, as suburbanites who live in Littleton, Colorado, we often can read something like Solomon enslaved his own people and think, well, okay, that probably was normal back then. Definitely not normal back then, okay? It's not as though all of a sudden 3,000 years makes people really cool with their king enslaving them, okay? Totally taboo, not a cool thing to do at a party, okay, in the ancient Near East. So the point there is that Solomon enslaves his own people, which is completely inappropriate in the ancient Near East, again, to feed his own appetites. He believed this lie that if I have enough, if I find the right one, if I get just the right amount, maybe I can also be finally and fully satisfied. So we've got to pivot here and begin to ask ourselves, where is this true in my life? Immediately, when I ask myself that question, I know what it is. For me, it's success and recognition. I would love if all of you would love me. All right? I'm not a cat. I'm the golden retriever. I'm like, come over, pet me, and stay for three hours, okay? And I'm going to quick do a little break, and then come back, and we'll pet some more. I would love that. In fact, so much of my wrestling as I prepared this message was feeling 
oh, maybe it's not funny enough. Maybe they're not going to like me. I don't have a lot of jokes in here. Someone's thinking, okay, I'm getting up to leave then. (laughs) But the reality is that's actually an appetite of mine. This might sound goofy, and in fact it is. Um, There's a season of, of the church calendar called Lent, and in Lent, Christians give up good things for the purpose of sacrificing them and drawing closer to God. In other words, you don't give up your narcotics habit, right? You give up something that is a good thing and say, God, I give this to you. So I was praying during Lent last year and thinking, God, what is something I could, I could put aside for this season and not feed an appetite of mine in order to feed a greater appetite for you? And immediately what I felt as though I I thought and came to mind, I said, God, you're God, which means you probably have a ton of other ideas. Why don't you throw one of those out? And it was hair product. You can laugh at that because that's totally ridiculous, okay? I genuinely, I was cringing at the idea that I would maybe have to give up hair product for Lent. I left my house for 47 days. You guys didn't know it because I came to church feeling like a doofus because I didn't have my hair product in, okay? My girlfriend didn't care, but I didn't care because it's not about you. It's about me. You see, there's an appetite there for all of you to like me, for me to have a certain amount of recognition. And, and there is some level inside that I believe if I just have the right amount of recognition, the right image in front of you all, the right degree of respect, then maybe I too can be fully and finally satisfied. The truth that counteracts the lies Solomon believed and that many of us believe is that you will either rule your appetites or they will rule you. Not only did Solomon believe that lie, but he also again and again trades the ultimate for the immediate. What I mean by that is this. Solomon took what is ultimate, of most importance, and I'm going to define that as either God or the things that God gives. So I believe that includes family, children, spouses, relationships, good and pure and holy loves that you and I have. He traded those for the immediate. We see this in, again, two ways. The first is that he builds the Lord's temple. He builds the house of the Lord, the temple of God, in seven years. He takes seven years to construct this. And then, after doing that, he takes 13 years to construct his own house. Now, like I said a moment ago, the, the, uh, those who recorded these events, these are not arbitrary details. And it's not that Solomon was so zealous for God that he just wanted to get his house built. It's that it took seven years based off the material and the plans. But again, his priorities revealed that his home took almost twice as long the second, the second way that we see this in Solomon's story is with his wives. Uh, now, before we give Solomon a big high five for having a thousand women in his life, okay, or at least say a prayer for him, let's look at what Scripture says in 1 Kings 11 and how it plays out. It says this, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told Israel, the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. 
He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. Solomon trades the ultimate for the immediate. What happens in his story is that God comes to him and says, Solomon, I've told you not to do that. You knew it very clearly that this appetite of yours needed to be self-controlled. It needed to be um, managed. And because you did nothing about it but instead indulged it, now I'm going to rip the kingdom away from you. In fact, there are 12 tribes. I will leave one from your lineage, but it's not even for your sake. It's for the sake of your father, who is a man after my heart. But because of you, the other 11 will be torn away, and they will never have your name associated with them. You know what I think is troubling in my own life for the ultimate versus the immediate? And why I genuinely struggle with this, why I choose over and over what is immediate and here now versus what is most important and given by God? is because I actually get something still. So it doesn't feel like a bad decision. It doesn't feel as though I'm being cheated out of something really important because I have something right now in front of me. And some of you might relate to that. And yet Solomon says, it's a vapor. It is in front of you, but only for that moment. What we learn from Solomon's life is that he has traded the ultimate for the immediate and that his appetites ruled him as opposed to he deciding to rule his own appetites. And then last, we see that Solomon's desire for God was dulled by the pursuit of his appetites. You know, Solomon, kind of the, what we had reading the Ecclesiastes 2 passage, verses 1 through 11, almost could sound like a brag if you didn't know his tone behind it. He lists off that he's denied himself nothing, that there is so much he's acquired in his life, and he wants you and I to know it. And one of the things he lists off at another point is his military might. Man, the guy had chariots coming out of his ears, and he wants us to know that. But this is one interesting fact we hear and learn about Solomon as we carefully follow his story Never once does Solomon conquer any territory. In fact, it's so problematic that he instead builds a kingdom centered around his appetites, as opposed to expanding the kingdom of God. This is a place that, that you and I have to allow this to set in a little bit and hit home. Because for us, there are ways in which we can also build our kingdom centered around our appetites and desires and needs and wants, and as a result, neglect the kingdom of God from being advanced. But the second way that we see this from Samuel is from 1 Kings 11. We'll go back to that chapter, and we'll continue reading the outcome of his many wives. And this is what it says, starting in verse 4. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord, his God. As the heart of David, his father had been, he followed Ashereth, the goddess of Sidonians, and Melech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. 
On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Melech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives, who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. Verse 9 says, The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. What Scripture is telling us there is that Solomon allowed his appetites to dull his desire for God. I think what's sad when I read this is verse 9. And I almost, as I read it, it sounds as though God is almost suffering from bereavement of Solomon. This loss, this young man who you and I just heard a moment ago started out asking God for wisdom to rule his people and using that wisdom in ruling his people with two mothers. And yet after debt and enslaving his own people, following foreign wives, and spending more time and energy on his house than the Lord's, now we have Solomon. A man who at the end of his life writes Ecclesiastes and writes it with a tone of despair for where his appetites have left him. We have to turn this and ask about ourselves. Where do I see that perhaps? Where do I see my desire for God having been dulled by not the bad, but the excessive appetites that I've allowed in my life? I know where it fills in for me. Uh, when I was 13 years old, I met this boy in detention. His name was Joey Probasco, and we were going to get to clean out the girls' locker room, which as 13-year-old boys, we thought was going to be awesome, all right? That was the holy grail we were going to enter into. <clears throat> now, a side note, that was also one of the biggest learning lessons or lessons of my life. Ladies, you are just as bad as guys. You are just really good at hiding that. And I applaud that, but now I know your secrets because of my detention. But I met this guy named Joey. We cleaned out the girls' locker room. We became buddies. This was back in the um, Boy Meets Girl days, right, the TV show. And so he had these terrible glasses on that were super thick and this um, bowl cut just right around here that he split his hair in the middle. It was terrible. But he started to invite me to church, and I remember going with him. And I remember after a little while of coming to church with Joey, Uh, that I one time uh, just remember sitting in service and and the preacher was sharing who Jesus is. And it was as if one of those moments, I don't know if you've had it, where you walk into a room um, and you think you're by yourself and you're thinking out loud and you're having this conversation and all of a sudden you realize there's somebody else in that room with you and your immediate thought is, was I saying that stuff out loud or is that in my head? Right? I had one of those moments where all of a sudden I'm sitting there and I realize, wow, God, you're there. And not just there, you're there and there and there. You're here. You're real. And it changed me. It truly, radically changed me. And things that I was doing up to that point that I I didn't need to be doing, I should have stopped, I stopped. And the things that, that the Lord would have had me do, I began just naturally because there was a change inside. And what a wonderful and pivotal time to begin that process right before high school. But to be honest, about a year ago, I was walking outside of my house, heading towards my car. And I was having one of those conversations where you rehash something that somebody said. Do you know what I'm, you know what I'm talking about here? 
You rehash that thing someone said that really bothered you, and oh, I love these, I love these hypothetical moments, because you always have the best quip ever. You're like, oh yeah, take that. And in the moment that you're thinking through it, they have nothing to say, because what you said was like such a good return. Do you know what I'm talking about? You're all liars. No one's shaking their head. Well, I was having one of those moments, and I was thinking about, yeah, what I would have said, and all of a sudden, as I was walking, I literally paused, and it was as if that little boy who had been friends with Joey Rabasco and met him in detention was standing in front of me and staring at me and asking me, who are you? Because even though I pastor our middle school students here, and even though I, I, I work on staff at a church, I can see in my life the same trajectory that Solomon went on. Starting out with zeal and having my desire for God dulled. Dulled through chasing appetites and getting older and having more opportunity. And again, I'm not criticizing appetites in this room, but I do want to point out that they can, if overindulged, dull our desires for God. You know, as a student pastor, I also see this sometimes with my families of students. There are, there are times where I'll talk to parents who have students in, say, middle school or, or early high school, and they want their kids to prioritize, to emphasize all the activities that they do so they, they can continue to be active and get into the right college and go from there. And so there's a priority there, and I get that. Let me preface this by saying, if you're a parent, it must feel as though you have 500 strings attached to you. They're pulling all at the same time and in all different directions at full capacity. So I want to acknowledge that as well. But as a student pastor, I see the prioritization over here, and then I talk with parents whose kids are now starting to drive around by themselves. And their lives are becoming more personalized and individualized. And maybe your student is going off to college or they're in college and they're looking for their spouse. And it's at this place of life that we want our kids to prioritize God. The problem is that sometimes we haven't taught them and impressed on them to prioritize God back here as well. Now, if after I've just said that and people don't ever invite me back up on the stage— if you're angry at what I said, I would love for you to email me at my email. It's LarryR <laughs> at WaterstoneChurch.org. Anything. I love angry rants. I love them. Just send them to me right there. LarryR. That's my email. I'll be sure to get it. The truth is that this, that those strings, this appetite issue, the problem with it, we will either rule our appetites or be ruled by them. It doesn't end as empty nesters. It doesn't end um, the tension we feel when we start collecting social security. It continues until we come to be with God. There is an appetite and many inside of all of us, all of us that we will either rule or be ruled by. And so today I want to learn from Solomon. See, at the end of Ecclesiastes, Solomon says that the the conclusion he comes to is to know God and live by his commands. It's as if you and I get a little peek into a life of a man who lived his entire life feeding his appetites and now is telling us that it has ended in dissatisfaction and meaninglessness. Not that life is truly meaningless, 
but that his experience of life has, by and large, been. See, his wake-up call came at the end of his life, but yours and mine can come this morning. A moment where we realize, in your own privacy of your mind, the appetites that you have, the ones that are doing more ruling of you than you are of them, If you know what that's like, if you know what I'm referring to, then you also know that those appetites are not good masters. They are monstrous masters. They do not care about us. They are not forgiving. They do not have our best interests in mind. They're not freeing in their love for us. They're parasitic. And so today we're going to come to the Lord's table. But before we do that, I want to say this. There are some of you who hear me talk about appetites, and it has resonated so far. You've thought to yourself, I know what you're talking about. But you might go a step further and say, but there's one thing you didn't say, Elliot. And that's that I know my appetites, and I know they're a problem, and I don't love them. I hate them, and I have them. And I understand that because I stand in the exact same place. The appetites I recognize, I know are monstrous monsters, and I still have. And so today, I am telling you, based off what Scripture tells all of us, that it is only by the Spirit of God and His empowering, it is only by the Spirit that truly rose a dead man to alive that can free you and I from our own appetites. And so in a moment here, you and I, I invite you, if you know Jesus, if you believe that he is God, to come to his table. And as you come, this is a different setup than normal. I understand that. We won't have servers around. We want instead to present an opportunity for you to come to the Lord's table. And there's gluten-free elements over here, and you'll pick up the bread, and you'll tear it, and you'll dip it in the juice. But when you do that, do this. Recognize that Jesus, that his physical body was broken. Broken for people like you and I who are broken ourselves. Who have appetites that we can recognize but cannot always rule on our own. And that Jesus' invitation to you is to come and take him, the bread of life, Be satisfied by him. Come, but also in the cup, which he says himself is the covenant poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins and receive forgiveness. Your appetites and my appetites, they're not good masters. There is one good master, and his name is Jesus. He has given himself for you and only asks that you come, take, be forgiven, and go. So this morning, I would ask as you come to the table that you would make this a decision for yourself. Not just something we do at the end of a service once in a while, but instead that you would make it a decision to say, here are my appetites, Lord. I surrender them to you. I give them to you. And I take you as the bread of life, broken for me. 
And I drink of your cup of forgiveness for my sake. Because Jesus is a good and loving master.